Billy Joel's Leningrad depicts the irony of war and the nuclear arms race when the American Billy Joel travels to Leningrad and becomes best friends with the man who grew up in the Soviet Union. The irony of the song Leningrad begs the question, how do we get from a people who hold no grudges to people who wage war and support the construction of nuclear weapons. Today, Mary Wynn Ashford and Kathy Kelly are our guests here on Solution to Balance to help us sort it all out. Hello, folks, you are listening to Solution to Balance. We are WFMP 106.5 FM. I'm Jim Johnson here with Jamie McMillan. We are your hosts for Solution to Balance, a program of and sponsored by WFMP Radio. Solution to Balance is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed here are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do this by emailing us at solution to balance 18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Mary Wynn Ashford has been an activist since 1984. She is the former president of International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War and continues now as a board member. The organization won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985. She has been a leader in the international peace and disarmament movement for over 20 years. Comparing and contrasting the culture of peace with a culture of violence, she is author of 14 publications, 91 reads, 63 citations, including her 1996 book, Enough Blood Shed, 101 Solutions to Violence, Terror, and War. Her book has been translated into Japanese and the Korean languages. She examines the factors that make women vulnerable during war and the impact of war on women, describing what can be done to limit or end vulnerability of women due to war. A resident of Canada, community choir leader, and family doctor, she is a palliative care physician. Kathy Kelly is an American peace activist, pacifist, and author one of the founding members and co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. As part of peace team work in several countries, Kathy remained in combat zones during the early days of both U.S.-Iraq wars. From 2009 to 2019, her activism and writing focused on Afghanistan, Yemen, and Gaza, traveling to Iraq 26 times, joining domestic protests against U.S. drone policy. Since 2005, Kathy has led or participated in more than 50 nonviolent protests and actions around the world. She's been arrested more than 60 times at home and abroad, including a three-month stint in Lexington, Kentucky. She has written of her experiences among inmates of U.S. prisons and of targeting bombardment by the U.S. military. Her experiences in prison resulted in many of the essays collected in her book, Other Lands Have Dreams, published in 2005. If you think you've heard a lot about Mary Wynn Ashford and Kathy Kelly, be prepared for much more. Welcome, Mary Wynn Ashford and uh, Kathy Kelly. We're very pleased to have you with us. Thank you. To begin, Mary Lynn and Kathy, we shared with our listeners now some of your experience. But what about your life and professional journey, the one that brought you to your path that you now pursue? What can you share with us about that part of your experience? Mm. Who would you like to start? Jump in. Well, I'll, I'll talk then. In 1984, I was a fairly new family practitioner and in a new relationship with my own children and new stepchildren. And I, I was all by myself one evening. So I decided to go and hear a lecture at the university. And it was Dr. Helen Caldicott 
talking about the danger of nuclear weapons. I didn't have any interest in the topic, but I had nothing else to do. Whoa, it changed my entire life because I had no idea that there were 70,000 nuclear bombs in the world and that something like 4,000 of them were on high alert at that time. So when I got home, I thought to myself, thank goodness, Helen Caldicott is working on this because I'm too busy. And then I couldn't sleep. So all night long, I was thinking, there's no way that I could get involved in this. You know, I've got this new family, new practice. And then in my mind, Helen was answering me, like everything I said, I said, I need to, you know, make a living to provide for my kids. And she said, and what if there's no planet? And I said, well, I I'm not that kind of person who goes out marching with signs. And she said, no, who is? But lots of people are needed. Every different kind of person is needed. And you have to work within your own sphere of influence. So that's why she says, um, if you're a teacher, if you're a doctor, if you're a mother, if you're a woman, if you're a writer, a journalist, then you have to get involved if we're going to save this planet. So... I didn't sleep all night. And the next day, I still worked, I was exhausted. And for two nights, I just could not get this out of my mind. I just kept saying, no, I'm not the right person for this. And finally, I thought, is there a reason that I'm born right now, and that I've learned this and that I'm a doctor and a teacher, I was a high school teacher, is there a purpose that I have to pick up? What if there's a God, you know, (laughs) running through my mind? Maybe I better just do something. So the next day I told my family that I was going to have to get involved. And my boys were in high school at the time. And they said, well, it's about time, mom. This is 1984. And they said, I said, well, how, what do you mean? And they said, well, haven't you seen the posters in our bedroom? And I have to confess, I had never really looked at them, you know, Pink Floyd and you too and all of this. So the, after a while, I just said, no, I have to do something. And then my husband, who was an Edinburgh graduate in medicine, had been sent to serve in the Royal Navy at, to observe the hydrogen bomb tests in the Pacific. He'd never talked about that, but then he started to talk about it. And he said, it was so horrifying to see those bombs. I have put it out of my mind and my consciousness as much as I can. But if you'll take this on, then I'll keep everything going at home. So he did. We had seven kids between us and uh, I couldn't have done it if he hadn't picked up all of the the things that are happening with six teenagers and one in her 20s. So that's how I began. Over to you, Kathy. Oh, well, thank you, Mary Wynn. You know, when I was in high school, we went half a day Catholic, half a day public. We'd have mass in the morning and race riots in the afternoon. So it was a very dramatic environment in many ways. And there came a point when um, Brother Conrad showed us the film Night and Fog. And that was a film made after World War II by French artist historians who went into the death camps in Bergen-Belsen in Dachau, in Auschwitz, and and they filmed the camps emptied of people, but still with the terrible remains that showed the inhumanity, the blankets made out of human hair, and, you know, lampshades made out of human skin, the books with the names listed and lines drawn through those who were killed. And I remember seeing the tracks leading up to the camp and the narrator in a haunting voice. It was done with subtitles because it was made in the French language. And with 
background music, classical music, asking, you know, couldn't they have bombed the tracks? And I imagined, I, I went back and saw the film again, and this was, was only in my imagination, that the narrator had asked, didn't they smell the burning flesh? And I remember making a very deep personal statement to myself, I will never be on the sidelines watching in the face of some unspeakable evil. So the grooves, in a sense, were there. But I have to confess to each of you, I went through the Vietnam War, I don't know, like Brigadoon in the Mist. I never went to a demonstration. I never picked up a flyer. I never made a phone call. And that war was an evil war of choice against people who meant us no harm. But as I say, the grooves were there. And very fortunately for me, I, I went on to graduate school studying theology. And I reached a point where I just couldn't any longer piously sing, Our God hears the cry of the poor. And I never saw any poor people. I just wasn't crossing paths with people who were in need of food or shelter. But I knew about a group up on the north side of Chicago who themselves hosted a soup kitchen two times a week and had a house of hospitality. And so finally, very timidly, you know, I knocked on the basement church basement window and went down into the soup kitchen and began cutting onions and met some of the finest people in the world. And within three months, I had moved into that community and life got awful easy after that. After that, the community girding was there to really try to align my life with deepest beliefs. So at, fortunately, I, I just didn't have a great need for much income. I didn't know how to drive a car. I, I always shared housing with others. And so a bit like what you described, Mary, I heard Helen Caldecott and would <laughs> play her talks in a video to my students at St. Ignatius College Prep. And I thought, I, I just can't pay for this. I remember her saying, there are no communist children. There are no capitalist children. There are just children. And so I, I knew about some people in my neighborhood that were vortex refusers and said they wouldn't pay for nuclear weapons for a potential nuclear war. And they didn't want the conventional wars that were going on in Central America to be um, bankrolled by their income either. And so I went to the treasurer at St. Ignatius College Prep, a lovely man, John Slattery. And I said, could you please lower my salary beneath the taxable income? And he was kind of stunned and he you know, thought he had a duty to sort of talk me out of this crazy idea. And he said, well, what about the IRA? And I said, oh, John, I, I'm a pacifist. I, I can't support the Irish Republican Army. I, I didn't realize by IRA, he was thinking of a financial document, right? So, so at a pretty uh, youngish age, looking back on myself now, uh, I was 28 years old and I'm 68 years old now. I was very, very fortunate. The grass has never looked greener beyond and this community of people who have more or less said, okay, I'll let the IRS be my spiritual director, because if you don't pay your taxes to the United States government, then you really can't own property and you have to learn how to live communally. And you know, it just helped me with a number of decisions, including 
in a sense, mobility, because there, there wouldn't be a point in getting like a tenured position, because if the IRS came, you'd have to leave it. So, so I was sort of able to kind of clear out a job. I would finish as a volunteer when I was a teacher if the IRS came to garnish my wages. But I, t- I say all that because in the ensuing years, when peace teams would form to go into war zones or to defy economic sanctions, for instance, in Iraq, most of the people who came forward and said, yeah, I can do this, were people who, like myself, had already said, I'm out in terms of the taxation system or living uh, in a with a sort of a presumed normalcy, that it was normal to cooperate with the United States government, or it was normal not to put the effort to end wars at the top of your list of things to do. Okay, Marianne, before I ask you this next question, your book, Enough Bloodshed, uh, was that co-authored Guy Duncey? Actually, Guy and the publishers, New Society Publishers, called me up because I'd been talking a lot about nonviolent successes. And they said, would you please write a book for Guy's series? Guy wrote a whole series, including Stormy Weather, about 101 Solutions to Climate Change. And they asked me to write the one about nonviolence. So we named it Enough Bloodshed, 101 Solutions to Violence, Terror and War. And it was by that time I'd collected about 50 of these stories that I really needed because talking about nuclear weapons and policy all the time was really pulling me down a lot. And I found that I needed to look at this other side of humanity. So I was kind of collecting these inspiring stories. And I said, oh, sure, I can. I would just love to do that. And then after I'd signed the contract for the book, I thought, what if there aren't 101? What if there's only 50 and I've got them all? Turns out there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these stories where nonviolence, nonviolent actions at a small local level or at a major level have shifted everything. So it the writing the book changed me. And I had been um, sort of in a, I guess my mode of action was to be talking to my member of parliament and talking to our municipality and writing for the newspaper and that kind of thing, always saying, we have to stop this. This is terrible. We have to stop it. And I shifted to saying, there are different ways. And so I was coming up with solutions instead of just condemning everything. And at that point, I also found I'd been on panels with military officers, particularly one general, and we were doing a a debate and we liked each other so much that in the end, we we were sort of both saying the same thing. And it's interesting to me that community television must have run that that debate hundreds of times, because every place I went, people would say, I heard you debating with that general. So it changed me to, I guess, to trying to live my life so that we can open the way for solutions. And that's why IPPNW, the International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War, inspired me. And could I take just a minute and, and talk about that? Because IPPNW was formed in 1980 by two cardiologists. One was an American, uh, Dr. Bernard Laun, and the other was a Soviet, Yevgeny Chazov. 
So for them to come together and even talk was shocking. You know, at that time of the Cold War, it was Reagan and it wasn't even Gorbachev yet at that time. And this was two enemies, in theory, talking to one another across ideologic lines. And they put out a call and said, physicians have to um, notify the world that the greatest threat to public health today is not a cardiologic issue, it's a threat of nuclear war. And we have to raise that alarm with the public. And within a few months, tens of thousands of doctors were joining. And that's that's when I joined was um, as soon as they sent out the call and Canada founded a, an affiliate of IPPNW and I became an activist then. But it was because of that statement that we have only one planet. We can't be enemies. It, we just can't survive as humanity if we continue this way. Okay. Can you share some of those 101 solutions to balance with us? A couple, just give us an idea of what you're talking about. Yeah, um, I like to talk about women and the role that women have played, because just in the time that I've been involved, and and 40 years sounds like a long time, but doesn't feel like it, um, women have just grown in their influence all over the world. So one of the examples is the fact that for some strange reason, some developing countries put in a law that at the local level, 30% of the seats on the local councils, village or, or town council, had to be occupied by women. And I'll just give you, I've got a list right here. Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, India, and Pakistan were the first ones. And what happened was the women, most of the women were illiterate and they knew it. They, they hadn't worked outside the home and didn't understand what it would mean to, to go to a meeting and have a participation that was democratic. But there was this amazing 90-year-old man in India whose name was Acharya Ramamurti. He went around walking from village to village to teach the women the basics of democratic governance, how it worked, to set up literacy classes and numeracy classes for these women, and to teach them how decision-making got done in a group. And uh, one of our Canadian senators is Mary Lou McFedrin. She told the story of being there, actually, to observe all of this. And she said, in one village, the men set up a meeting and they put a curtain between the men and the women. And then the men would do the business. Women would be on the other side of the the curtain. And Mary Lou and Miss uh, (laughs) Ramamurti were were saying, no, 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 that's not how it works. The women are equal partners. Or they would turn the women's chairs to the back to face the wall. And, uh, and then the men would try to carry on. But very quickly, what happened was that here's a sample question. One village was asked to decide they were they were getting a grant from the federal government and they had to decide what to do with it. And so the men said, well, there's one guy in the village who has a car. So let's build a road to his house. And the women said, well, instead of that, how would it be if we built a high school and we had bathrooms with doors and then the young girls would be able to stay in school after they reached puberty because they couldn't do that without uh, bathrooms with doors. And the men said, oh, that's, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So it wasn't that the men were evil or wanting to exclude the women, so it never crossed their minds to put in bathroom doors so that these girls could keep going to school. So that's just one small example. And then another one that's another favorite of mine was the mayor of Bogota, Colombia, at the time when Colombia was regarded as the most violent city in the world. 
and he ran as super mayor. So when he won the election, he was a young guy, he was in his 50s, and was a mathematics professor. But he said, um, okay, we're going to change things. And he knew that the transportation system was totally, totally corrupt. You had to bribe your way to get anywhere. So he fired all of the um, conductors and he replaced them all with pantomime artists. So when, when they needed to control traffic, these pantomime artists danced and people laughed and the traffic slowed down and traffic congestion and accidents dropped really, really low. And he took a shower on, uh, on television to demonstrate how to shower with a minimum amount of water. So he turned on the water, got wet, turned it off, soaked himself down, turned it on and rinsed. And their water consumption in a drought dropped by 40%. So these are, you know, they're just so far out of, out of our common ideas and so creative that that's the kind of thing that stops people when they get into a, into a conflict and they get jammed up. And it's this creative thinking that enables us to move ahead. So Mary Wynn, you are, as you pointed out, a physician and past president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. This organization won the 1985 Nobel Peace Prize. Would you share with us the purpose or mission of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War? What are some of the organization's accomplishments and what role do you see for it in the future? Right. Well, its purpose is to raise the awareness of the whole world that nuclear war cannot be survived. And that in the event of a nuclear blast, medicine doesn't have anything meaningful to offer. You know, the, the level of destruction with people vaporized and horrendously burned and the hospital destroyed, it means that doctors facing it, the doctors who survive on the outskirts of the city, I'm guessing, would have no running water, no electricity, no one could come in to help because of the radiation. So you wouldn't have, you know, doctors without borders flying in, the airports would be destroyed. There'd be no bandages, no morphine, no anti-nauseants. So you can't do much with a stethoscope and that would be about all you would have. Um, so that was the major message and the World Health Organization issued a statement about five years after we got going and agreed that nuclear weapons are the greatest threat to public health in the world. That's the major message. But I think the other message is that we have to see ourselves as one human family. And all of our meetings were held with members from the Soviet bloc, from, you know, not just the Soviet Union, but all of those countries in the Warsaw Pact and all of the countries on the West. And that we doctors are concerned about the lives of patients, regardless of whether they're communist or, or capitalist people or children, as, as Kathy was saying. So as we were out speaking everywhere, certainly television cameras and, and uh, newspapers were very interested in what we had to say. And by 1985, we won the Nobel Peace Prize. But I just want to reflect again about what the world was like in 1985. It was still the peak of the Cold War. Gorbachev had come to power and was opening up ideas in the Soviet Union. But it was still um, Reagan and Thatcher and, and Gorbachev. So there was enormous tension and fear. And when we won the Nobel Peace, 
Peace Prize. In fact, the press were extremely hostile. They wrote a a headline in the European newspapers that said KGB wins Nobel Peace Prize because Dr. Chazov and Dr. Laun jointly won it with IBPNW. So we won the UNESCO Peace Prize as well. And since then, we've just been extremely active in, well, in the landmines campaign to eliminate landmines in the world was, was another one. And we were very active at the time that the Berlin Wall came down. And I think that our meetings with Gorbachev had influenced him greatly. We were, we were meeting with him in 1985, very shortly after he came into office, and he became convinced that the Soviet Union would need to get rid of their nuclear weapons. And he and President Reagan then uh, signed the first START treaty and reduced nuclear weapons enormously. And at the same time, Gorbachev was advancing in, in his thinking about nuclear weapons and peace issues. So I think we had a big impact there. And I think we we continue to have that impact that we are bringing the the prestige, if you like, of doctors and the concerns of doctors. And without any kind of hidden agenda, we are just concerned about the health of humanity. We're not trying to make money or gain power or something by this movement. And so we continue to do all of that. Mary Wayne, what press gave you such a despicable writer? <laughs> it was in the European press. I don't even know who it was. We just got okay. a note that, that that was what they were saying. But I'll just tell you a little story around that, though, that uh, at the time of the Nobel ceremony, there was a press conference. So the room was absolutely packed. Lan and Chazov were there and a number of other cardiologists from around the world. And the Soviet television cameraman collapsed with a heart attack, with a cardiac arrest. In the midst of this, the room was packed with all this hostile press and they were shouting questions and suddenly this cameraman collapsed. And Laun and Chazov both threw off their jackets and started to do CPR and and, uh, respirations and so on. They called the ambulance, this was in Norway, and so the ambulance arrived very quickly and the man survived. And that completely changed the tone of that press conference. And Laun said, Laun pulled out that by that time they had a defibrillator and the, and the printout and he pulled out the printout of the cardiogram and said, when you look at this cardiogram, you cannot see if this man was a communist or from a democratic country, we're all the same. And it just completely changed everything for the press then. Kathy, a statement you made about the spiritual life, your spiritual life is a uh... This quote does a quote. One of the most important spiritual directors in my life has been the Internal Revenue Service. Finding ways to live without owning property, relying on savings or growing attached to a job, becoming a war tax refuser was one of the simplest decisions I ever made. Give us some background on this proclamation you made. I think some folks would like to know the secret to living without uh, growing attached to a job. How and why did you, did not owning property and not relying on savings or being attached to a job work for you? You know, there's a song that was popular at some point about 10 years ago, and the lyrics said, our work is more than our job. And our life is more than our work. 
And so I, I'm, I'm kind of a hard worker. I'm, I'm task oriented. I, I, I was a, a, a student in the classes of the Sisters of Charity of Leavenworth, and I was always teacher's pet. And I, I wanted to, you know, be a, a good student in a sense. And um, so I guess in a way, I see George Orwell's Animal Farm and Boxer in that play saying, I'll work harder, I'll work harder. And in a way, I'm that way. And I don't want to say what happened to Boxer at the end as he goes through the meat grinder. But nevertheless, have had for a long time a sense that our life is more than our work. And certainly for me, work has been more than a job. And the more that the dimensions of work became evident in terms of working to rid the world of nuclear weapons, the more it became clear that we had to try to find ways that we could communicate the gravity, the urgency that might sort of grab people's attention and make them think, oh, what did they do that for? So I planted corn on top of nuclear missile silo sites. There were 150 of them surrounding Kansas City and 1,500 of these intercontinental ballistic missiles buried in the farmers' fields all throughout the Midwest. And in fact, now there's a new effort to reinsert intercontinental ballistic missiles in some of those underground silos. But at the time, a number of us from Midwestern cities who were, you know, as Mary had said, uh, social workers, nurses, teachers, you know, we were not people from extraordinary backgrounds, really. But we came together and we, and a number of us were vortex refusers, and we were asking ourselves, what could we do that would communicate better to the farmers in the region? And that's when we came up with this idea, well, we'll plant corn, because farmers understand that land was meant to grow corn and wheat, and maybe they'd understand, well, yeah, maybe it shouldn't be used to harbor weapons of mass destruction. We used to say, if you made a beautiful loaf of bread, you wouldn't sow razors into it and give it to your child. And that's sort of how the land, both in the Soviet Union at the time and in the United States, was being used. So, so that led toward one of the most educational years of my life, because I was sent to maximum security prison for one year. And uh, I, I learned a great deal while I was there that I could not have learned otherwise about, I guess, what you might call the United States war against poor people in our country. But it also kind of maybe gave me a firmer resolve, I, a, a little more back. And so uh, out of that came, I think, a, a heightened readiness to say I would go to a war zone with other others who were committed to pacifism and try to you know, stand in between the warring parties. And so um, that, that defined much of my life effort over a long span of time. But if it's okay, there's a, there's a story I'd like to tell that kind of helps me understand how nonviolence can function when it seems to be working best. And, and Mary's certainly already been alluding to this with the idea of kind of catching people off garden and, and helping them see a different reality. So, I mean, when I was planting that corn on the nuclear missile silo site, um, I was being guarded by a soldier and we were out in the middle of a field. And after some minutes went by, I, I couldn't keep myself quiet any longer. And so I started talking to him and telling him a little bit about the neighborhood and why we did what we did. And, and then I asked him, do you think the corn will grow? And he said, I don't know, ma'am, but I sure hope so. And then I asked him, would you like to say a 
prayer? Yes, ma'am. So I, I recited the St. Francis peace prayer that ends, uh, Master grant that I may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be pardoned as to pardon, to be loved as to love with all my soul. And he said, amen. And then he asked me, ma'am, would you like a drink of water? And I said, oh, oh yes, please. And um, I can't tell you for sure because I actually didn't turn around, but he had a canteen and he squeezed, he said, ma'am, please tip your head back. And I did. And then he squeezed that water down my throat. And I think maybe he put the gun down or let it, you know, lie at his side on a strap, but he kind of disarmed himself in order to do an act of kindness for a complete stranger. So many years later, I'm in Baghdad. We've just gone through the shock and awe bombing. It was shocking and it was awful for two weeks, ear splitting blasts and sickening floods. But one morning, uh, we by this time, there was no electricity. We'd lost all contact with anyone outside of you know the street that we were on. And coming down the street, Sharia Abu Nuwas, a boulevard in downtown Baghdad was every type of military vehicle imaginable. The Marines were coming down our street. They had just arrived in Baghdad with armored personnel carriers and tanks and Humvees and bulldozers. And they parked right down on the street beneath us. So they were looking up at us, you know, where's their spaceship? We were looking down at them, you know, and they started to ask us, well, who are you? And so our friend Neville Watson, a, a minister and a barrister from Australia, called down with great dignity, well, a peace team. And then um, the Marines said, well, where are you from? And so each of us called out our cities. And as this dialogue sort of began to take shape, I looked at my friend Cynthia Banus and I said, they look awfully thirsty, don't they? And Cynthia dropped her end of the banner she and I were both holding. And she said, I'm so glad you said that. Of course, that's the right thing to do. And Cynthia, wearing her code pink hat, went down carrying two big six packs of water to deliver water to the newly arrived Marines. And to me, this was almost a little bit like bookends. I remember the Marine offering me water. I'm sorry, the soldier offering me water. And we offered Marines water. And that started some dialogue. But all through the day, the hours of that day, up on the second floor balcony, Neville, who was really our spiritual center in so many ways, the Australian lawyer minister, stood holding a sign that said war equals terror. And he wouldn't put that sign down. He didn't have anything to eat or drink. His knees started to knock. We were begging him, Neville, sit down for a while. But until the sun went down, Neville held his sign. And so to me, you put one hand out to steady your opponent, a hand of friendship. But at the same time, you point to the reality you want the opponent to see. And for me, that was Neville and his sign up on that second floor balcony, where while we brought the water out, he didn't follow us. He held up the sign. Wow, a wonderful story. That, that's a fascinating story. So, but Kathy, what about the vulnerability of women, Marianne, during the war? What are what are some of the examples of the ways you feel women have, can, or couldn't contribute to any military conflict? You know, it's my belief that women can speak for themselves. They don't need someone like me to be there raising a voice for them. But often the women's voices are shut out. You know, um, very currently here in my 
my country in the United States as the troops were being withdrawn finally from Afghanistan. And there was you know, a lot of riveting imagery coming forth from the airport, for instance, as people were struggling to leave. There was probably more coverage over a two-week span of Afghanistan than there had been for the past 20 years. Yeah. And then during those 20 years, there really wasn't a lot of interest in women who would say, I, I think I'm growing emotionally disturbed. And, you know, if you ask, well, what's wrong? I can't feed my children. Well, what food do you have? Stale bread and tea without sugar. Women who had infants who were going to suffer from chronic brain damage uh, because of severe malnutrition, if they could just get iodized salt into the diet of the child, and that would cost five cents per child per year. Those women weren't getting what they needed to save their children. And at the point of the height of the U.S. surge of troops in Afghanistan, it was costing $2 million per year to keep one soldier in Afghanistan. So women had a right to say whose benefits Mm-hmm. are being protected. Is it us or is it the people who are making money as war profiteers? And who are the war profiteers in our country? Well, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, General Atomics. These were the companies that, and Raytheon, that developed big improvements in their livelihoods, uh, the, the people who headed those companies and also worked for them. But meanwhile, The only livelihood a young person in Afghanistan could find was in picking up a gun and working for some warlord, either the Afghan National Security Forces or the the U.S. forces or NATO forces or different warlords or uh, the Afghan local police. And so the mothers didn't want their children to be going out to fields with hardly any protection and learning how to shoot guns. That's not what they wanted for their children. But their stories were ignored, undervalued. and, And when the United States wanted window dressing for why it had to get more and more money poured into budgets. Then they'd say, oh, well, because our mission is to improve the lives of women and children. But even today, Afghanistan is one of the worst countries in the world into which a child can be born. And one out of three young Afghan girls has anemia. 41% of the children are stunted. So women always have a story that ought to be heard. I also have heard some of the most blunt expressions come from women with regard to terrorism. I remember a woman tapping the photo covered with plastic of her beautiful child who had been killed after a drone had been surveilling the area for days. And she she herself was wearing a medical hood and a neck brace and she pointed above. And I didn't quite understand what she was talking about because I didn't know much about drones at the time. And she asked me, didn't they know? Didn't they see my Zahara? Just, I take her to a shelter at night then she runs back to me in the morning. And then she tapped her finger on the plastic over the photo. And she asked me, who are the terrorists? Is she the terrorist? And I've heard mothers again and again get right to the heart of the issue that Neville's sign proclaimed, war equals terror. And of course, the United States economy has been propped up on weapon sales, weapon manufacture, and war making. You know, maybe once upon a time, people made weapons to fight wars, but now we make wars to sell weapons. Let me follow up with a question for you, Mary Wynn. In your 2008 book, The Impact of War on Women, you discussed the fact 
factors that make women vulnerable during the war. You, you examine the impact of war on women. You, you describe what can be done to limit or end the vulnerability of women uh, due to war. Share with us some factors you feel make women vulnerable in, in war and share what you think, what, what can be done to limit yeah. vulnerability. You know, there's so much that's bound up in the position of women in a society, it's not just that it's so terrible for women, because of course they are weaker physically than the men. And so they're very vulnerable that way in war, but also they finally, they have declared rape as a, as a war crime. And it's about time because rape has been used as, as a tool of war uh, deliberately for centuries. But there is some really, really interesting research by a woman named Mary Caprioli, where she studied countries that were at war between 1956 and 25 years later. So whatever that is, 80 something. And uh, she looked at each country that was at war and looked at the role of women in that country. And then she found that where in the countries where women do not have the right to choose who they marry and what age and, and when. Uh, they don't have the right to the number of children, deciding the number of children they're going to have, so no control over their fertility. They're not allowed to work outside the home for money. They're not allowed to vote and they're not allowed to stand for office. In those countries, they are 30 times more likely to have a war. Mostly she's talking about internal wars, civil wars, but. 30 times more likely. And the more you increase and empower women in that society, the less likely it is to go to war. So that's a really important thing because that means that the role of women, when women are allowed to speak out and to, um, and to share in the governance, when that's happening, that changes everything. It changes the, the structure of the society. The United Nations tells us that 70% of the workers in the world for peace and social justice are women. And they also said somewhere, I wish I could cite this reference, but they say, if you have an organizational structure and you increase the participation of women until it's above 35%, that that's when the shift occurs and uh, the, the, um, the group becomes more collaborative, more cooperative. They start listening to each other. All of these things that improve just ordinary governance, well, as in the case of how about um, bathrooms with doors in, um, in India, but it's, it's for whatever you're dealing with in your community. You need at least 35%. Now what they're advocating generally is that you have to have 40% of either gender. So it's not that we're asking for 100% female governance, but we're saying you have to have at least 40% of each so that you get this balance where people start to listen to each other. And also women are concerned about their children. So when you're talking about wars for power or for more land or for more money, women are saying, how is that going to affect the children? What the women want is education. They want safety. They want security. They want food. And they want 
want community. They want that kind of collaboration that comes with with community. So the role of women is really important. And I just want to remember to talk about this UN resolution 1325, which was in 2000, I think, that um, it says that every peacemaking or peace negotiating or peace decisions, treaties, every time there's a delegation, it must include women. Now, they wanted the the women who were organizing this went to the Security Council and said, we would like to propose this resolution, but they weren't allowed to speak to the Security Council. That's that's not permitted. But they were allowed to hold a meeting across the street in the church building and invite the Security Council to come and listen. So at that, they presented the resolution and said why it was essential that women be on these teams at every level. And then the men went back to the Security Council and they passed 1325 that said women must be on all of these. And they passed it unanimously. And then they didn't do anything about it. So they passed it unanimously and had their fingers crossed. So we're just now beginning to see women on all these peace negotiations. And the Philippines has been one of the leaders in this, having a a woman leading the peace negotiations with the Moro a few years ago. So the role of women, it's coming to the surface. We're starting to see, and we're starting to hear from people everywhere. Well, I see this panel on the stage, but where are the women? And where is the voice of women in this discussion? So we're making progress and God help us. I hope it's soon enough. Kathy, here's a dispatch you wrote from Baghdad on March 19, 2003. And this is a quote. I suppose I'm more prepared than most of my companions for the drooling roar of warplanes, the thud that threatens eardrums, the noise of anti-aircraft and exploding massive ordnance. Compared to average Iraqis my age, I've tasted only a small portion of war, but I am I'm not a complete stranger. I feel passionately prepared to insist that war is never an answer. It was eight years ago. With the recent U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, what what are your thoughts now about how this particular war has has been ended? And and how do you feel women in general should prepare to to insist that war is never an answer? Well, I'm concerned that the war in Afghanistan is not ending. In fact, it seems that uh, President Biden has been quite clear in saying that he envisions withdrawing the boots on the ground, but then continuing a combination of drone surveillance and drone attacks, along with CIA intervention, special operations, and aircraft attacks. And um, back in June, the United States Air Force sought 10 billion dollars to fund what they call over the horizon capacity to continue to make war against Afghanistan. Uh, So it concerns me very much that the kind of drone attack which killed the members of the Ahmadi family in Kabul, even though the United States military officials initially said, oh, we killed a terrorist and the terrorist had uh, explosives in his car and the terrorist appeared on our video footage when we were doing drone surveillance, carrying some something very gingerly, and we're pretty sure it was weapons. Well, that was no terrorist at all. That was a person who worked for an NGO linked to the United States who was hoping to, in fact, move to the United States with his family. And like many families all across Kabul, he didn't have any water. So those supposed weapons were actually big canisters of water that he was trying not to spill as he placed them in his car. And so they lost 10 members of the family, seven of whom were children. You know, Ann Jones wrote a book entitled 
war isn't over when it's over. And the ongoing trauma, the displacement, the bereavement, the memories of torture and of fear, those are intergenerational. And, you know, I believe the United States should not only pay financial reparations, although I don't think the U.S. can itself be in charge of, quote, nation building or rebuilding. We've shown ourselves to be completely inadequate at that. And we've, in fact, engendered so much fraud and corruption over these sordid past 20 years. But I think there should be an escrow account into which the United States would at least at the minimum pay the equivalent of the $10 billion the United States Air Force now seeks to continue warfare. And I also think that U.S. people have an accountability to pay reparations in the sense of repairing the structures, dismantling the structures that caused all of this havoc and suffering in the first place. And then when I remember the economic war against Iraq, you know, the United States government wanted to supposedly punish Saddam Hussein with those economic sanctions, hundreds of thousands of children were punished to death. And that was a tortuous death from starvation and loss of their internal juices because of gastrointestinal poisoning. And they didn't have medicines. They didn't have water. They didn't have food. They didn't have antibiotics. And sometimes if they did go into surgery, they didn't even have painkillers. So would the United States do that again? You know, we can look back further in history. How did the United States punish Vietnam after the United States lost that war? How did the United States punish Laos? How is the United States punishing Iran right now? So will the United States use an economic warfare telling people, well, we have to freeze the assets of people in Afghanistan because we can't support the Taliban. But who will get walloped by that freezing of the economy? It will be the poorest of the poor as the healthcare system collapses, as food distribution declines, as people don't have livelihoods, they can't earn an income, and they can't get salaries even if they are working. We ought not ever, ever try to justify harming Afghanistan further and then claim somehow that we are righteous in doing so. You know, the military person describing that drone strike against the family in Kabul said it was a righteous strike, but they're wrongheaded criminal activities and there must be accountability. And hopefully we're moving toward a teachable moment when people in the United States will finally begin to ask, what are the consequences of war after war after war? How much terror have we inflicted on people who mean us no harm? And when will we be ready to say that we are sorry, we're so very sorry for the suffering we've caused? So National Mainline News has, for the past three weeks, produced stories concerning the chaos of the U.S. troop withdrawal and the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. The weekend of September 10th through the 12th, the major TV networks lauded the courage of first responders and offered heartfelt condolences to those who had lost loved ones as a result of the attacks on the Twin Towers in New York and on the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, 9-11. The theme of the 20-year anniversary of the attacks that occurred on 9-11 was, quote, we will never forget, end quote. But if you watch the TV coverage of the 9-11 anniversary, it looks like we have forgotten. We have forgotten the reason that George W. Bush gave for initiating an attack on Afghan and Iraq. We have forgotten that a lot of those reasons 
reasons were based on lies and misinformation. We have forgotten that attacks perpetrated against the World Trade Center and the Pentagon was not launched by the Iraqis or the Afghan government, but by a rogue group who called themselves Al-Qaeda. We have forgotten that the yellow cake uranium, supposedly from Niger, and supposedly proposed to fuel Saddam Hussein's nuclear program, never materialized. We have forgotten that the nuclear arms program that was supposedly being developed under the Hussein regime never existed, given these veritable historical facts. The reason for the 20-year Iraq and Afghan war become unclear, misleading, false. But if we're going to admonish the attacks that occurred on the 9-11 and commemorate those who suffered as a result of those attacks, how do we, as Americans, go about telling the whole story to ourselves and the rest of the world? When the media covers a conflict, but only covers one side, isn't that propaganda? How are we going to correct our mistakes if we don't know what they are? Mm. Well, I do believe the U.S. public has been vastly underserved by the media because of the subservience of the media to a, a government that has wanted to protect the wealth of very powerful people in this country and the wealth of the military contractors and the military industrial complex. And I think that the United States as, as an empire has communicated to other countries all around the world, if you do not subordinate yourselves to fulfill our national interest, we can eliminate your children. And if you don't believe us, look at Iraq. And so I think the United States wanted this example of what would so ruthlessly be done to Iraqi children. Now, most people in the United States don't even know how much the people of Iraq suffered, but the Iraqis know. And I think the United States war planners wanted to say to all the other countries, this is what we're prepared to do. And and that kind of lashing out, that kind kind of wholesale slaughter and child sacrifice goes on. And if the media doesn't tell us about it, how will we learn? I know that Mary harbors a great, great concern for children, innocent children in North Korea. And, you know, it's I think it's all of a piece, the children of Iraq, the children of Afghanistan, the children of Gaza, the children of North Korea, in all of these various war zones, the United States and its allies have acted as brutal and vicious and terrifying war lords. And they have demanded that U.S. people not give their advice. They don't really care about our consent. They just want our money, basically. They want to be able to keep bankrolling, keep funding this wicked perpetration of warfare. And so for people in Afghanistan today, uh, with the marking of 20 years of United States warfare. This has been a time of, of great travesty because they, they truly don't know what's going to happen to their country. And it could be that the catastrophes that are looming are even going to be worse than what they're experiencing now because of an economic freefall and a new wave of COVID and terrible drought and the likelihood that the news media is going to move Move away from paying attention to Afghanistan, and they'll suffer while shrouded in secrecy. And I would like to say another consequence 
of uh, this 20 years of, of war and all the lies, all the lies that, that built up the enmity and the uh, misinformation, all of that has left outside countries, and I'll speak as a Canadian, it's left us thinking, what happened to the ideals of the United States? What happens when Americans are singing, my country tis of thee, and, and yet this is the behavior that is in the press all the time? Where is the coverage of the, of the people of principle who are saying, we don't want to solve things through violence anymore? We don't want, and especially, we don't want drone warfare that is conducted by people who are half a world away firing on on people who are can't really be identified and so often are the innocent attending a, a wedding or a funeral or children playing and so on. These things have to stop and we have to hear the voices of the other people, not the ones who are promoting violence. Ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. We want to thank our guests, Mary Wayne Ashford and Kathy Kelly for being with us today on Solutions to Violence. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m. and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Today's program will be repeated December 13th and 14th. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Mary Wayne Ashford and Kathy Kelly will be placed in our archives December 14th. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org. Scroll down to Program Archives and then down to Solutions to Violence program that features Kathy Kelly and Mary Wynn Asher. Thank you for joining us in our search for Solutions to Violence. I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson for your host for Solutions to Violence. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooke Johnson. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thank you for listening.